Radio Mano Papachango. Earthlings, this is your host, Chris. You're listening to Tangentially Speaking, a commercial-free zone, a zone in which I am not trying to sell you any damn thing. Welcome. It's one of the few places left. I consider it a sort of a national park for the mind, so glad you're here. This episode is with a fascinating dude, Steve Silberman. He's a science journalist, uh, probably best known for a book he just published a couple of years ago, I think maybe two years ago, called Neurotribes. It was a New York Times bestseller, hugely admired piece of work. Uh, I didn't, I haven't seen any review of it that wasn't downright glowing, and I can understand why. He's a really nice guy, as you'll hear, very thoughtful, funny highly intelligent, uh, you know, not much, can't think of anything bad to say about the guy. I really enjoyed sitting down with him and and it was one of these wonderful podcast situations where uh, we connected, actually we connected a long time ago. I think he reached out to me for some sort of, I think for an interview for the book and we talked on Skype a long time, five, six years ago. And then I was aware of him, followed him on Twitter, and then um, saw the book come out, saw how well it was doing, and uh, congratulated him and said, hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast, but uh, you know, not right now because you're going nuts and this can wait. And so I let the sort of waited for the frenzy to die down a little bit. And it was wonderful to have a chance to go to his house and look around. And one of the first things I saw when I looked around in his kitchen was... Uh, an illustration of Walt Whitman, one of my favorite poets, as you know. And uh, so why don't I read you a a poem I like by him? It's very, very brief. It's called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. And uh, this is about science sometimes obscuring the wonder. And uh, I thought it was an appropriate thing to read because Steve's writing is very much about conveying the wonder of science. And uh, I think that's something that he does very well. So uh, this is Whitman. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, How soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. That's Walt Whitman when I heard the learned astronomer. So, some stuff to cover before we get into this episode with Steve Silberman. Uh, First of all, uh, several people have written to offer their assistance 
in doing the uh, audio editing that I mentioned in a previous episode where uh, we're going to put together best of episodes, maybe 60 to 90 minutes of best moments uh, from Duncan and uh, maybe Rogan and Stanley Krippner and other people who have been on the podcast several times sort of pick the the highlights of those moments. And then so we're going to edit that down to 60 to 90 minutes. And then we're also going to do like a five minute thing and then uh, the creme de la creme, you know, 60 second thing that can go out on social media. So Basically, uh, at the moment, we have three people who have all volunteered to do this. They're coordinating among themselves another one of these podcast community projects. Um, so it's it's fantastic. I love when this kind of stuff happens. Anyway, they would like your feedback. Uh, I think... So if there are particular episodes and even more helpfully, particular parts of particular episodes that stand out to you as being something you'd like to see included in this, uh, we set up a special email where you can send in that information and they'll take that into consideration and and, uh, uh, use that. The email is TS, tangentially speaking, best of b-e-s-t-o-f at gmail.com clever t-s best of at gmail.com so send in if you even if it's just yeah i really love the stanley krippner episodes or i'd love to hear you know that part of uh, the casilda episode where she mentions you know what it's like to or you know growing up in mozambique or whatever it is that's helpful even more helpful is if you say yeah, that uh, the first episode with Casilda episode uh, 100 uh, at minute 57, where she's talking about this and that. If you can be that specific, that'd be really helpful for them. Then they won't have to go looking around for it. They'll know exactly what you're talking about. So that's tsbestof at gmail.com. And uh, that'll be really helpful to get your participation in that if you can, if something jumps out at you. All right, another bit of news. Uh, Colin Crevero, who was a guest on the podcast, uh, I don't know, two years ago. He drove down from Victoria, B.C. to Portland, where I was living at the time, brought his guitars. We sat in the park and talked and played. It was one of my favorite experiences with the podcast. Uh, We became friends. Really sweet guy, incredibly talented. Uh, He plays in a band called Man Made Lake. And they've got a new video uh, that they put a lot of work and thought into. It's uh, it's a very interesting video and and song. And um, they want to sort of announce the official release of the video through the podcast. So I'm doing it. Here it is. This is the official announcement that the Man Made Lake official video for the song Blood in the Sink is now being released as of this second that you're hearing it and um i'll have it on my website it'll be on the this episode with uh steve silberman and uh and i encourage you to check it out it's quite interesting it it uh, treats the question of how hatred is so often a result of fear and uh, confusion over who we are. We tend to hate 
people and things that remind us of parts of ourselves that we're trying to run away from or hide from the world. Anyway, very thoughtful. Blood in the Sink, Man-Made Lake, check it out. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, I'm going to launch right into this conversation with Steve Silberman. Uh, Save reminders and, uh, you know, Patreon encouragements and all that for another episode. I'm going to play you into this conversation with one of my favorite tunes by Man-Made Lake. Uh, I think it's probably the first one I ever heard, and it uh, sunk some hooks into me that are still there. It's called Simple Man. This is Colin Carvero and Man-Made Lake. Talk to you next time. With gentle hands, a piece of thread, a hard pulled glass. Cause I know I'm not a simp, man. I take the blows the best I can. I try, I need your smile. Yes, and I, I need your smile. Sever all our vicious thoughts Let's try to laugh Steer our heart Cause you know I'm not a simple man You say the words the best you can I need I needs to be kind Oh and I I needs to be kind Little diamond fingers Resting on the boats Running with your pleasure I'm hanging on the hooves Yes, cause I am a difficult man There's anything I've learned Running through with pleasure 
I'm hanging on the hooks Yes, cause I am a difficult man If there's anything I learn Anything I've learned There's anything I've learned It's how to love All right, I'm sitting in uh, San Francisco, actually not far from where I lived in the 90s. This is like I come to San Francisco and I reminisce. I get real nostalgic. I live, I've lived in San Francisco three different times. Um, anyway, I'm with Steve Silberman, author of Neurotribes and an earlier book about the Grateful Dead. Which Cold is, Skeleton Key, a dictionary for deadheads. There you go. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Well, yeah, we were, while I was setting up the mics, we were talking about my enigmatic relationship with the dead. Yes. I kind of I kind of love them from afar, I guess, is the way. <laughs> which is fine. You know, so many people love them that... If you can create more space in the in the arena by having someone not there, that's also cool. Well, that's it's, funnily enough, that's sort of my relationship with Burning Man too. I, I went this year for the first time ever, and um, I wasn't. People have been telling me forever, "You got to go to Burning Man. No, oh, you're going to love yeah. Burning Man. You're the Burning Man guy." Uh, yeah. And and I finally went, despite the fact that I don't like uh, like really hot weather. Yeah. I, I'm pale skinned. I don't right, need right. a desert in the summer. Right. I, know, I don't like dust. Right. I don't really like boom, boom, boom right, music right, all night. Right. Um, and uh, I don't like being dirty. Right. It sounds like you're not the yeah, burning man. Yeah, I know. Guy. I don't yeah. like cops. You <laughs> right. Know? right. <laughs> uh, like my, I, it's not the kind of place I would want to trip. I, right. I want to trip by a waterfall. Right. You know, or exactly. a beautiful beach somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, I went and I, 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 there were things I loved and things I didn't. But afterwards, one of my good friends who loves Burning Man, who I was afraid actually would be hurt uh, to hear that I didn't mm. love it, said what you just said, which yeah. is like, dude, it's so nice to hear somebody. Like not feel like they have to love it, right? You know right? right. I mean? yeah. No, I know. I mean, I just turned sixty the other day. Congratulations! And, and part of being part of the good thing about being my age is that you no longer feel like you have to try to be into everything. Yeah, you know, it's like people can invite you to stuff that you know you're going to hate. Yeah, you just say like, "Sorry, yeah. no, I'm not into it." Yeah, you know, and that's fine. Like you don't. It doesn't keep you up at night wishing you were a cooler person. Right. <laughs> There's no time for this <laughs> right, bullshit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I've, I, like I said, I'm 55, almost f- going on 56. Yeah. Some funny, we don't say that, you know, yeah. when the kids do. Like, right. 50, I'm not 55 no, and a half. Right. <laughs> no, I heard someone, that, I heard a, a young woman uh, a few months ago say, I'm so depressed. It's my birthday. It's the big two o. The big two o. <laughs> poor thing. It's all downhill from here. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, uh, do you ever get the feeling like you're sort of learning how to dance as the party comes to an end? Oh, for sure. Well, I used to actually have a big sort of trip with that because I am what's known as a trailing edge baby boomer. Yeah. Which means that. All the cool stuff happened right before I got there. Okay, think about this. We are now sitting in the Haight-Ashbury, 
Why are we sitting here together? We're sitting here together because I met some hippies from the Haight-Ashbury when I was, I think, 10 outside of my apartment building in New York City. Yeah. And they were so cool that I spent two days with them. They were obviously tripping, although I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> and I said to them right before they left, where are you guys from? And this woman said to me something so fateful that I, I almost can't believe she actually said it. She said, we're from a place you'll never see, the Haight-Ashbury. Well, needless to say, I kind of proved her wrong because I've lived here since 1979, so yeah. we're now going on 2018. But she was also correct yeah. because the Haight-Ashbury as psychedelic communal New Jerusalem you know, was gone by the time I got here. Yeah. So, and that happened over and over again, yeah. you know? Yeah, I was here. I lived down on the Panhandle. Uh, I forget the name of the street. Hayes, Oak or Fell or Hayes? Hayes yeah. and Fell. Hayes yeah. and Fell, yeah. Uh, and I was moving into my apartment in 89 when the earthquake struck. Oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah, with, yeah. with my girlfriend who was a stripper. Oh, wow. And I, I look back on that and think that was the universe telling me it wasn't a good idea. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but did I yeah. listen? No. No. Of course not. But yeah, so, you know, then I moved here in 79, you know, to join the big party for gay liberation, AIDS. You know, uh, yeah. it was like, right. my, I felt like my generation, my, my, the image in my head was that my generation was always getting to the party just in time to see people sweeping up broken bottles and carrying the bodies out right. the back door. Right, the ashtrays you know, are overflowing. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I felt like that happened over and over again until the invention of the internet. Hmm. Basically, I got into the internet, I think, in 1991. I joined The Well, that amazing virtual community that. that's yeah. still going, even though I'm not really part of it anymore but you know it was started by Stuart Brand right. and Larry Brilliant of Sava and, and you knew them through your work I didn't at Wired or was this no, before I, you were at Wired it was before that uh. it was actually uh, my postings on the well that got me the job at uh -huh. Wired really? actually yeah which was really interesting my my life has been virtually completely remade by social media I met my husband online uh. um, in the early days before the web on Usenet if anyone is old enough to remember what that was AOL uh, <laughs> right exactly and um, so basically once you know I sort of spent my I guess 20s regretting the fact that I had not been slightly older yeah. and could not directly participate in the innovations that the baby boomers uh, triggered. Yeah. And I also, eventually I became a little bitter and hostile because it was like, Jesus Christ, you know, if you were a baby boomer and you had an idea in 1966, you were a genius and it changed the world. And if you had like an equally valuable idea in, you know, 1986, who cared really, mm. you know? But it was actually the uh, emergence and widespread adoption of the internet that made me feel like, I had cultural leverage to remake global culture for the first time in my life. Mm. And uh, so that was a huge thing for me. And it got me over this kind of generational inferiority complex, really. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I, you know, I grew up, I was born in 62. So I was vaguely aware of the Vietnam War. I remember Walter Cronkite and the body counts and my uncles were in the war and some of them got pretty messed up. So I sort of saw that. 
I, I loved the music. I used to visit my aunt, who now lives in Topanga, which is why I am connected cool. to Topanga. And she had, uh, you know, we go to her place. She's my mother's youngest sister. She had a Volkswagen van with flowers oh, yeah. painted on the side. Oh, great, yeah. Uh, you know, weed. I smoked weed first time yeah. at their place. They had, like, all these cool people coming through. A guy named Giacomo, I remember, used mm-hmm. to come through. Crosby, Stills, and Nash oh, great. records. Um, and so, like, good music. Yeah, Neil Young probably vibe. lived in Topanga, I think, for, for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I think yeah, so, yeah. 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 yeah, lots, I think, Mama Cass. I mean, yeah. there was a whole scene there. Yeah. Um, but torque of the monkey. But I, but I, yeah. was, you know, like you. I mean, I was thinking maybe you were old enough to enjoy it. But I, I mean, no. I definitely wasn't. I could yeah. sort of, I could sense how sexy her friends were and right. how like comfortable with themselves yeah. they were. And I was like, man, give me a few years. Like, no, I know. <laughs> but, what, but what about like being gay though? Because I mean, the, the gay situation wasn't so great in the. No, it wasn't 60s, so great. Um, yeah, I mean. I was born on the cusp of gay liberation. I was the first part of the first generation of gay teenagers who had outspoken gay liberation people already there in the world by the time we became mm. aware of our own Where gayness. did you grow up? In Queens in New York City. Ah, okay. And so I remember like watching, you know, when I was really young, I remember watching talk shows where the gay people would have like hoods over their faces because you wouldn't want to mm. show their faces on right. television, you know, right. but then, you know, all of a sudden circa, you know, in, you know, circa 68 or something, all of a sudden you, or at least 70 anyway, you had hippie, gay hippies walking down the streets of Greenwich village, like Christopher street arm in arm and, mm. you know, saying you smash the patriarchy or right. whatever. And so I was like, you know, I was just old enough to know that I was gay right when that was happening. And so I was really the first um, part of the first generation to grow up in a kind you know, the beginnings of a post-homophobia world. Right. So in that sense, you, yeah, you that caught was the good. wave at that exactly was really the good. right time. Yeah. So is that was that your connection to the Beats? and, and Because th- well, that's an area where, yeah. I mean, Bur- was Burroughs openly gay? Yeah, he was. And yeah. Ginsburg certainly yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, very much. Um, you know, I could say yes, but um, my connection to the Beats was much more personal to Allen Ginsberg than that, yeah. in that it wasn't just that he was gay, it was how he was gay, and it was all the other stuff he was into. Right. He was Allen Ginsberg was a perfect role model slash spiritual father figure for me, uh, except for the fact that once I met him, he was... <laughs> It was problematic. But um, basically what happened was I went to see him when I was in... I went to Oberlin. And uh, I went to see him at Queens College in my sophomore year with my first boyfriend, a guy named Ed Power. And we sat um, we sat right up front, I think the front row. And Alan came out with a guy named Stephen Taylor, who was a beautiful boy about my age. And Alan would have been uh, younger than I am now, I say poignantly. But, you know, in in his probably mid-50s. I had never seen a middle-aged man so fully present in his body, so openly joyous, so seemingly woke, as they say now. Um, I had just never seen a guy, like, so present who was old. Like, old Mm. guys back then seemed like robots to me. 
and he was not you know he was like poking through the veil like all the time right. you know and I, it was a, a transformational experience. Mm. If I had been a Tibetan Buddhist and he had been a reincarnate Lama, I would say that I, I had the experience of recognizing my guru, um, which is which was a, a way of thinking about that that he specifically resisted because he didn't want to be anybody's guru. But I looked at him and I said, wherever that guy's going to be next summer. I, I'll get an apartment across the street if he needs somebody to buy him cat litter or uh, take his garbage out mm. or take his film to the camera store. I will be that guy. Right. And how old it, were you? I was nineteen, and I was that guy. <laughs> I became that guy. So smart. I actually, I actually uh, sold everything I had, pretty much, really, um, and went to Boulder, Colorado. Where there was a place called Naropa, Naropa Institute, yeah, right? Yeah. And this was in back in the day of wild Naropa. This is Chogyam Trungpa. Yes, days. Trungpa wasn't there, but his Dharma regent Ursul Tenzin, uh, who later resigned in disgrace. Uh, um, it's more complicated than that, but anyway. Yeah, Trungpa but, had some. Uh, Trungpa was a complicated guy. Well, he was an alcoholic, but and a he womanizer. And a womanizer. Yeah. Well, yes, but he was unapologetic. About unapologetic. It, so he I'm, never lied about anything. Yeah, you know. And, and, and isn't there like a, a, a lineage in in Buddhism of the sort crazy of wisdom, crazy yeah, drunkard, yeah, exactly. right. and womanizing? Right. That's my lineage. Like, right. I sign on to that one. Right. Uh, it's a complicated lineage. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's, it is. It's, but, right. And the key is you never lie. Yeah, once that's you true. you start lying, right. you're sunk. Right, exactly. As Dylan said, if you're going to be an outlaw, you have to be honest. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, the thing about Naropa when I was there, it was amazing. I mean, it was pre-Google Boulder. So it was um, a funky little hippie town. Yeah. And, you know, a couple times a day, you would see literally hundreds of people walking towards the meditation hall with their little cushions. And uh, all kinds of people were there. Burroughs was there. Course Gregory Corso was there. The jazz group Oregon was there. Um, it was a hotbed for cu countercultural luminaries, really. And uh, so I was Alan's student the first year, and I was terribly shy and terribly dorky and terribly self-conscious. And, uh, you know, Alan... Uh, what I appreciate now much more fully than I did at the time was that Alan's father had just died. He had uh, he and he and uh, Alan and his life partner Peter had just nursed Alan's father through his final illness, and so Alan I think was kind of freaked out about mortality mm. the first time I was there. So the way that expressed itself was that he was in a frenzy about getting laid. Like he just, he really wanted to get laid. And he had excellent taste in young men, I must say. Um, and, you know, people say he was a pedophile. He was not. Um, the guys who, I knew the guys he slept with. And they were, for one thing, you know, teenagers are old, older teenagers are older. But for another thing, they were eager to do it, even right. if they were primarily straight. Mm -hmm. And even I was eager to do it. Um, but Alan was so uh, sort of crass. Uh, the one time they ever really came on to me, it was kind of disappointing, you know. Mm. Uh, it was disillusioning. And I remember talking to uh, another of the original Beats, a guy named Philip Whalen, who ended up becoming a, a uh, blind Zen master late in his life. And I was Philip's uh, assistant 
for a while. And I remember telling Philip that my initial experience with Alan was dis- disillusioning. And he said, ah, what's so good about illusions anyway? <laughs> so, you know, I was like yeah. this dorky, naive teenager. But, uh, you know, so I had some issues with Alan. But, uh, you know, I still loved him. I still was very much uh, affected by his work and the work of not just the beats, but poets like Whitman and Blake that he turned I, me on I to. I see your, right, your exactly. Whitman on the wall. No, I know. Yeah, there's Ellen on the wall. I'm a huge uh, Whitman fan. Oh, yeah, me uh, too. I, yeah. yeah, I uh, met one of my best friends in my life uh, because I was, I read a poem at a party oh, wow. when I was in college, and the, there was this professor there, and he said, ah, somebody read some poetry, and I read Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Oh, lovely. And yeah. uh, we became you know great friends after that. Totally oh, transformed great. my life. Because yeah, that, that's a poem where where Whitman speaks through you, right? You know, he speaks yeah. to you and through right. you. It, it's such an intimate experience to right. read that poem, right? Well, the thing with Alan's work was that because I was gay, but I was not. I knew that, you know, I'll, I'll speak very bluntly here. I knew that Alan wasn't a queen or a Castro clone. He was kind of a, you know, as they say now, a kind of a cis male. Um, but he was very openly gay mm. and he was the first person like that. I think I ever met. Right. And, um, you know, I'm kind of queenie myself, but, uh, you know, I've never really fit into the gay subculture. Right. I, I always fit more into the kind of deadhead subculture. I mean, that's what right. I was a part of. Right. And so Alan had, you know, danced at the human being while the grateful dead played, you yeah. know? Yeah. So Alan had all these, uh, connections to the hate Ashbury, um, phenomenon and that community and that really intrigued me and Alan's style of being gay really intrigued me it struck me that he was often the only gay person in groups of straight people which I already knew I was and would turn out to be and am now um, that's true true of both me and my husband most of our friends are straight and right. we don't go to gay bars and you know I mean it's not that we have something against it it's just not us you know, yeah. um, how does that work? I have a lot of close friends who are yeah. gay. I know that sounds like some of my best friends yeah. are black kind of thing, but um, I've always been intrigued by by there seems to be an essential conundrum um, if you're a gay man who is not into the sort of queeny conventional, yeah. you know, stereotypical yeah. gay scene, then the men you'll be attracted to are kind of by definition not going to be interested. So you think. Um, yeah. What what you know what <laughs> yeah, Alan and I both knew was that in fact you know allegedly straight guys were constantly having sex with men, but like, would, but would they have a relationship? Yeah, that's a different thing. Right, I didn't marry a straight guy; right. I married a gay guy. Yeah. But um, you know, let's put it this way: when I was younger, I slept with almost all of my friends, like at Oberlin, male right. friends, and right. they were primarily straight. Right. And yes, it was a different era. It was before AIDS, so people were a little bit right. more loose and experimental. But um, sexuality is a spectrum. Yeah. And, you know, we still don't want to talk, like, you know, now, like, young people are actually sort of naming all the different colors on the spectrum, including asexual, which is, which is beautiful. Um, but when I grew up, it was sexuality was binary. Mm. You were gay or straight. Yeah. And 
you know, I figured out from my own, shall I say, research, um, that that was not true. Yeah. And so I didn't suffer from a lack of even love. And the thing about love, I mean, I'm sorry that we're getting so like emotional and abstract. No, this is great. Okay. I think this is great. The, the thing about love is that it's not always in line with what you think your sexual orientation is. Right. So some of the most indeed passionate, indeed romantic, not always physically expressed, but some of the deepest, most spiritual, most intense, most hot in a kind of heart hot way, relationships I've ever had are with heterosexual men. Yeah. And some guys are not capable of that kind of connection. And they're only capable of that kind of connection with women. But that has almost, it's almost accidental if that aligns with their sexual orientation. And I'll give you an, an interesting example of that. Jack Kerouac was, if you read his writings closely, which I've been doing my entire life, it's clear that he was primarily physically more attracted to women. When he thinks of, you know, when he wants to masturbate or whatever, he thinks of black, you know, black silk stockings or, you know, stuff like that. Really, you know, panties, you know. But who did he love? He loved Neil Cassidy, the hero of On the Road uh, and the hero of the Grateful Dead song, the other one. And Neil was, you know, a very masculine, handsome, virile, you know, as Jack never tired of mentioning, you know, <laughs> virile guy, you know, cowboy hero of the yeah. western whatever yeah. and um jack's primary emotional attachments were with men uh he slept with both women and men alan ginsburg told me personally that he went to jack, he went to a bathhouse with jack where jack fooled around with a bunch of french sailors and had a good time you know but his emotional alignment was towards men yeah, there's much more of that in the world than anyone knows. I, I think there's so much of that in sports, yep. in the military, yep. in in places where men are allowed to be in physical contact yep. with other men, in yep. in like uh, contact, in like fighting, UFC. Yep. Like I I feel a, an undercurrent of homoeroticism yep. in all these things. Yep. And and you know I'm coming at it from from another side, I guess. But I would also say that my most intimate friendships have been with gay men. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. it's, you know, primarily I, I find because straight men are so guarded and restricted mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and easily scared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, um, the gay men that I've been very close to have, you know, I was, I was talking about this with Joe Rogan. Do you know who Joe Rogan uh, is? Um, UFC sorry. fighter, like oh, yeah. super macho oh, dude, wow. like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. muscles and tattoos mm -hmm. and all that. But very, very smart, interesting mm -hmm. dude. And I was saying to him, like, in my experience, the most, if, if we equate uh, manliness or masculinity with, like, overcoming fear, mm -hmm. um, a, a deep allegiance to authenticity mm -hmm. and the truth no matter mm -hmm. what, mm -hmm. In my experience, in my life, gay men have have embodied that. That's interesting. Very yeah. deeply because mm -hmm. they've had to go through this. Right. Fuck, I'm going to lose friends. I might lose right. my family, right. but I am what I am. Right. You know, and so that creates this um, 
opportunity for for freedom and, right. and openness and devil may care sense right. of humor right. that makes it really fun to hang out with right people, right, you know? right 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 and also and you yeah. can share things at a very very deep level that that i find difficult to find straight guys who can go yeah there. that's interesting i i sort of i think i've been that guy for a lot of straight guys you yeah. know i've been this the um one of the only gay friends, but also one of the very best friends mm. to lots of straight guys. And um, it's just me, you know, it's like I, I no longer question it. What's funny is that one of the reasons why I was depressed when I was like a gay teenager, and remember there was no internet, so I had no community yeah. whatsoever. I couldn't get into the local gay bars, which were few anyway. Um, I had no sense of community whatsoever. I felt completely alone. There was only one other gay guy in my high school who was out. Um, Were you out as a teenager? Uh, not in high school so much. I, I did finally have to tell a uh, one of my classmates who had a crush on me, uh, a woman, um, because I didn't want to be leading her on or whatever, you know. But uh, I didn't come out until I was in college. I did come out to my parents, and because this was the early 70s, the first thing they did was send me to a therapist for the cure. Oh, no. You know, homosexuality was still yeah. in the DSM, the Bible of psychiatry. Didn't um, do electroshock with... Uh, no. Uh, no. She turned out to be a very good therapist and that we had a couple of sessions and I finally asked her, do you mind if I ask you, how much is this costing my parents? You know, and she told me my parents were poor communist academics, so uh, they had no money, you know. Right. So I said, well... Do you think I really need to be seeing you? And she said, "No, you seem completely happy to me." And I said, "Could you tell my parents that?" You know. Mm. And so they accepted that. And then what I was able to do, although it took years, was to reframe in their minds their feelings about homosexuality, so that they realized that what they were doing was kind of like racism or anti-Semitism. Mm. And they were coming at homophobia from a slightly unusual angle because, as I said, they were communists. So they thought that homosexuality was uh, a symptom of late-stage capitalist decadence or something like right. that, you know, the Weimar Republic or something. Right. And so, like, it was some idiotic, uh, you know... Uh, waste of time or something and they were also afraid you know to be fair to them they were also afraid i would have a sad life right. you know because it would be harder to find a partner um but over time because i was able to fit it into a structure of beliefs that that they understood um they ended up becoming huge supporters of me and you know and they came to my wedding to keith and oh, my father gave the only political speech at the wedding and um so that that was actually a beautiful thing, um, and it really helped. It helped them open up, I think, to a more compassionate view of human beings in general. I right. think really, um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, it, it's funny. Like, uh, it was such a beautiful thing when my husband and I were finally able to get married, because I was one of the people who journeyed from you know kind of the very end of the dark ages to the beginning of the modern age and um yeah it was a beautiful thing and that pointedly that turned out to be the last time i saw my father alive uh or at least conscious because he had a heart attack and went into a coma and died unexpectedly like six months later mm. so the most beautiful one of the most beautiful days that we ever had together was the last time i saw him 
you know, talking and whatnot. So, yeah, so that turned out to be a beautiful thing. That is beautiful, yeah. especially in light of the fact that so often, you know, by the time someone dies, our best memories of them are so far in the past. Yeah, that's true. So it's really beautiful to to have that last memory be one of the most beautiful ones. That's a great gift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I made notes before I came over. This, okay. this is nowhere in my notes. I had no idea. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, go for it. that's why this this podcast is called Tangentially Speaking. Oh, good. I love it. <laughs> this is my favorite thing. Where oh, good. I, and this rarely happens with someone I've just met. Uh, you know, often I'll have like friends on and yeah. we just turn on the mics and go. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's wonderful. Oh, I'm, good. I'm really glad that Excellent. that happened with you. Great. Um, yeah, let me run a theory by you. I, I yeah. mean, since we're on the subject. Sure. I, I ran this one by Dan Savage. You know Dan? Yeah. 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 He just put me in his column uh, last week. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. I, I mentioned I saw yeah, you yeah. in his column. Yeah. yeah. He, I owe Dan a lot. Dan. I don't know him personally. I should say. Oh, he, I'm just a look fan. Look him up sometime. He's, yeah. He's a wonderful yeah. guy. Yeah. I I actually spent three nights in his basement. Oh, great. Uh, the, when I was on a tour with Sex at Dawn, he invited me. I hadn't met him in person at that point, but he invited me to stay at his place and. It was really funny because, uh, you know, he took me down to the basement where the guest room was. And he's like, everybody thinks there's going to be whips and chains down here. Oh, it's just funny. a basement. No, that's funny. <laughs> it's basement. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so the, what I've been thinking about, like we're talking about homosexuality and, and it, you know, I've done a lot of research in cross-cultural sexuality and how things are expressed in different cultural contexts. And, you know, it's so hard to talk about things where we think the words are meaningful, but we're using these slippery words that don't really contain what it is we're trying to pass around, you know? Sex, homosexual, for example, uh, homosexual, as I'm sure you know, wasn't even a, a term until right. about 100 years ago. There were right. homosexual acts, but not right. homosexuals, right? right? Even and, during Whitman's time. There wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Know, I mean, so when yeah. someone says, "Was Whitman a homosexual?" Right. It's like, well, it does. It, right. it doesn't compute in his right. era that you right. wouldn't think that way, right? Right. And also, today there are cultures in which it doesn't make any right. sense. You know, where part of being a man, or becoming a man, is ingesting as much semen as possible because right. that contains the essence of masculinity, right. Right. and then you'll be a great warrior. It's like, well, right. is that gay? Ah, what the hell does right. it mean? You know. But so I was thinking about how. Men, um, and not only male humans, but uh, males of other mammal species, dozens that have been documented, have a, a developmental window mm -hmm. where they have experiences that imprint their sexual behavior mm -hmm. throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. Whereas the females are much more malleable and they constantly change given mm -hmm. whatever the, the opportunities are. Mm -hmm. There's a famous experiment with... Uh, goats and sheep where they they take them and they they take the baby goats and the baby sheep and switch them and put them in the hmm. other species hmm. and then when they become sexually mature they switch them back to their original their hmm. own species hmm. and the males refuse to have sex with the females of their own species because oh, they've imprinted on the other oh, species that's interesting, yeah. whereas the females are just like yeah whatever right, you know right. this is what's here oh, that's interesting um, so my, my thought was, and I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about this publicly. I haven't mm -hmm. written about it, um, mm -hmm. and you'll see why. But mm -hmm. the idea is that if a male has an experience as a young mm -hmm. man, and in humans that, that developmental window seems to be somewhere between, say, five and ten years of age mm -hmm. generally. Mm -hmm. 
So if a male has an experience with another male, maybe an mm-hmm. older male, which many mm-hmm. do at summer mm-hmm. camp, or, you know, after mm-hmm. school, whatever, mm-hmm. and that experience is imprinted on them as a very pleasurable experience, mm-hmm. but they're, they're they're not born gay, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. They're, they're, they're not, you know, like I assume mm-hmm. you came to an age where you're like, oh, this is me. This is the way I was born. Mm-hmm. This is my essence. It's just... Yeah, when I, I trace back my... The people who I found magnetic, really, even before I was overtly sexual, right. it was guys. Right. And not only that, right. it was a specific type of guys, uh, one of whom I married. <laughs> you know? Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, so... So there, there's that type of person who's just that sexual orientation is innate. And then there are people who the sexual orientation is somewhere else on the spectrum, mm-hmm. but they have this experience. Mm-hmm. Now, if the experience is, you know, they're under the table when they're seven years old and their mom's friend comes in and she's wearing black fishnet stockings, mm-hmm. they might then imprint black mm-hmm. fishnet stockings for mm-hmm. the rest of their lives will turn them on. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, the smell of latex mm-hmm. or, and you know, how many women are fetishists? Very mm-hmm. few women need to have a certain fetishistic impulse to have an orgasm. I, I'm, I'm out of my depth here on that. I, I suspect there are probably 500 lesbian fetishes over the <laughs> next hill. You know? <laughs> Especially in this day room. Right, right. <laughs> but <Yeah>. go on. <laughs> All right. So, well, statistically, according to the experts, right, right. um, that's, it's a much more male mm-hmm. thing, the fetishistic mm-hmm. thing. So my, my sort of thought was that there are men who are, uh, in terms of their sort of innate orientation, mm-hmm. they're not gay, mm-hmm. but... They do like to have sex with men sometimes mm-hmm. because they've had that experience that imprinted on them. You know what, though? You know, I mean, I feel like we almost couldn't talk about this in, you know, in an hour or something. But I'm wary of that theory because I feel like there's a lot of room for confirmation bias in it. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, I mean, we could go way meta on this. If you think about the things that you came in contact with that turned you into yourself, you know, in my case, coming in contact with Allen Ginsberg. You know, it's hard for me to understand who I would have been without Allen. Yeah. It's hard for me to understand who I would have been without LSD. It's hard for me to understand who I would have been without Melville, even. You know, mm-hmm. it, now, was it, oh my God, you know, Bobby Dick ended up in my hand and then I imprinted on it? Or was it like, it was part of my destiny? You know, that's a big word. Yeah. It's a scary word for science people. But, you know, it was part of my destiny to be, you know, into Melville's work. And so I sought out things that were kind of like it until I found it. Yeah. You know, and so with the black lace stockings, is it because Mrs. Smith walks by the dining room table in her black lace stockings and, oh, my God, there's a young boy under the table and it suddenly is imprinted? (laughs) Or is it that... The boy, the boy's destiny is right. to love black lace stockings. Right, right. Mrs. Smith walks in, voila. Yeah, you know, yeah. They're, they're, it's a resonance. Yes. Yeah, I mean, but, they're, if, you know, if time is not linear, then there are some really interesting, you yeah. know, things to look into in that yeah. in the yeah. destiny department. Right. You know? Destiny and and past lives. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Moby Dick. I, I love I love Melville. Yeah. 
and Moby Dick. I mean, the the homoeroticism and Moby oh, Dick yeah. was overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I my great insight into Melville was when I realized that Moby Dick was a comic novel. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. 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 I mean, there's that whole chapter where they dress up, they, they, they cut off the whale's dick and they gut it out and cut armholes and they're dancing around it, on It's the a deck. hilarious book. I think he says he's an archbishop prick. Oh, yeah, there he's, you go. He's got the yeah. penis on his head. You know, realizing that something is hilariously funny also happened to me with two other major cultural institutions. William Burroughs. You know, it's like people start reading Naked Lunch and they're like, oh, my God, this is horrible. Some guy's having an orgasm while he's hanged, you know? But I, I realized that there was like this, the whole, all of Burroughs' oeuvre is basically told in kind of a burlesque, queeny, criminal underworld, yeah. dishy voice. And if you hear it as funny, it's not like, oh my God, he's trying to make me nauseous, you know? <laughs> and same thing with Thelonious Monk. It's like, uh, Thelonious Monk, uh. when you hear it, you think, oh my God, it's so dissonant. You know, but then you finally realize he's actually hilarious. Yeah. He's a hilarious player and he's constantly making, you know, sort of unexpected little moves that you are funny, you know. But until you realize that both Burroughs, Thelonious Monk and Melville, you know, are yeah. hilarious, you don't get what they're doing, really. I was just recently, I can't remember who it was, but I, within the last week I was listening to someone, I don't know if it was a podcast or, or in person, and they were saying that Burroughs was a stand-up comic. That they realized that Burroughs was yeah. doing shtick. Yeah, he was. Yeah, routines. He oh, I know them. who it was. It, it was then. a podcast between Mark Marin, a conversation. Mark Marin's podcast, uh, speaking with um, James Franco. Oh, how great! And James Franco's a big fan of Burroughs. Oh, that's great. And he was talking about how Burroughs was a comic genius, and yeah. he read. Naked Lunch and understood the comedy. Yeah, of it. absolutely. And most people, I would say, don't get that. Yeah, they, they think he's, uh, you know, like it's almost like slasher fiction or something. Yeah. But he's actually really funny. Yeah. And meeting Burroughs when I was nineteen, which I did that first summer when I was with Gins, uh, with Ginsburg, was you know I expected because of the his reputation, I expected that Burroughs would be this sort of like cold, you know banker from venus or something you know and he was actually like this incredibly sweet incredibly funny eager to be liked even sort of you know unexpectedly so uh very well-mannered queen he must have been in his 60s by then yeah or yeah late 50s yeah but he was very sweet you know i remember like getting high with him at a party (laughs) oh he was he was funny as hell and he was much warmer than his reputation would have suggested. Mm. And um, so, uh, yeah, I sort of feel like, you know, mainstream culture identifies these things as hostile because they're different and they seem to be coming from the outside. Right. But they're actually, like, incredibly funny. Or or serious. Right. Moby right. Dick is a serious, right, right. a classic American right. novel. Take it seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, or Mark Twain. Like, who the hell's taking Mark Twain seriously? Right, if, right. If your teacher is taking Mark Twain seriously, they're teaching it wrong. You know, right. it's yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, yeah. So okay, let's let's get 
<laughs> yeah, get to your questions. We're, we're yeah. half an sure. hour into this. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about autism because I, sure. I know very little about it. And, oh, sure. And I was interested in picking your brain a little bit. Yeah, you're sure. You're not on the spectrum. No, I'm not on the yeah. spectrum. Um, no, I'm sort of hyper-neurotypical, as they say. Yeah, and I'm, you're I'm not, very non-autistic. And I, I looked um, up your background. You studied literature at Berkeley. You're, yeah. You're, so yeah. you're not, I mean, you're not Well, I was neuro- a psych major as an undergrad. Well, how but, did you get to know Oliver Sacks? I mean, there's a connection oh, to neuro- because, I, well, yeah. This all ties together in a neat package, really. Um, in 2001, um, I wrote an article in Wired called The Geek Syndrome, right. which was one of the first mainstream press articles about autism in high-tech communities. And what I had noticed was that there seemed to be a lot of autistic kids in uh, Silicon Valley. And at that point, which is distant history by now in autism years, um, autism was considered very rare. Um, now it's considered common, as it should be, because it is. But um, at the time, autism was considered very rare. So, you know, basically what happened was I was writing one story about a bunch of computer programmers on a, a cruise ship, something called the Geek Cruise. The star of the cruise was this guy, Larry Wall, who's this incredibly wonderful and eccentric guy who invented a programming language called Perl, sprinkled throughout the source code of Perl are quotes from Lord of the Rings, his favorite books. You know, he was a really cool guy. And uh, right before the cruise ended, I asked if I could interview him at home. And he said, yeah, sure, I should probably tell you I have an autistic daughter. So because autism was considered rare, because so little seemed to be known about it in mainstream culture, that it barely registered. I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. But then six months later, I was writing a story about another technologically very adept family in Silicon Valley, and I asked the sister-in-law of the woman I was profiling, could I come interview her at her home? And she said, sure, we should tell you, we have an autistic daughter. And I thought, God, that's odd. I thought autism was rare. And so I was telling that exact story to a friend of mine at the Reverie Cafe, which is half a block away, and a woman at the next table said, oh my God, do you realize what's going on? And I said, what's going on? She said, there's an epidemic of autism in Silicon Valley. Something terrible is happening to our children. So, you know, that was a heavy thing to hear. Um, and that actually turned out to be another turning point in my life. But So I ended up writing this article about um, autism in high-tech communities. And at the time, everybody was hysterical about vaccines, basically. Vaccines or... Uh, you know, electrical wires, you know, whatever. Like, they had, there were a million environmental explanations mm. for why there, you know, was thought to be an autism epidemic in Silicon Valley. And um, so that was how I got into autism. Instead of, uh, I, I did a bunch of research for that article in, you know, a short window of time that you get to write a research a magazine article. And I concluded that it wasn't an environmental thing that actually what was going on was that parents who had mild autistic traits were getting together and having kids and if that happened then the genes could become more concentrated in the kid um why did these parents have mild autistic traits well as you know now everyone knows although it was still a relatively new idea at the time um certain autistic traits can be a, a competitive advantage in um, high-tech communities. Certain kinds of focus, 
the ability to detect flaws in lines of code, etc. There are a lot of reasons why people with autistic traits uh, end up in high-tech communities. That's not to say that all autistic people are suited for or even interested in high-tech work, but there's definitely a, a noticeable overlap. And, uh, you know, Temple Grandin, the most famous autistic person in the world, talks about this all the time. Mm. And so I wrote that article. Oliver Sacks read it. And when he was, um, he was living in Greenwich Village at the time. And I got a, a call up from his assistant to tell me that he loved it, which, you know, I was, needless to say, I was incredibly honored. Yeah. Um, just so I was going to New York. So I said, why don't I come and meet Oliver? I had no idea that Oliver was practically a hermit. You know, like you don't just invite yourself over to see Oliver Sacks, you know. <laughs> but I, I was naive, you know, yeah. and so I did. And then to make matters even worse. And they accepted worse, it. They said, okay. Well, to make matters even worse, when I was in his office, where, by the way, he arrived in a bathing suit because uh, he had just gone swimming, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I said, Oliver, what are you up to now? And he said, well, I have to get ready to going to London next week, you know, for Uncle Tungsten book tour. I said, why don't I come with you? You know, it was a complete, like, if I'd known any better, I would never have said any of that. But he actually said yes. No kidding. His assistant said yes. I'm detecting anyway. a theme in your life. Yeah, there are theme. several themes. You described yourself as being like a dorky, shy, mm -hmm. you know, but you met Allen Ginsberg and said, I'm going to follow that guy and be his assistant. Dorky, but determined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I also, I mean, the one thing that I did have, even when I was very shy and self-conscious, was that I've always been able to talk to people and like adults would tell me they're about their secret affairs, like when I was, mm. a, you know, a teenager, people open up to me for some reason. I assume it's my destiny, a chemical thing, you mm. know. So um, I'm not totally um, too hung up to introduce myself to someone who I think is interesting. Right. And if someone I think is really interesting, like if I get a, you know, that kind of deep experience of recognition, which I certainly got with Alan, and you know, got somewhat with Oliver anyway. Um, I go with that, you know, and it, they don't have to be famous, you know, mm. it's like I, I am, um, you know, just the other day I, I saw a video by an autistic uh, guy online. It was a hilarious video. I tweeted it, but it was more than that. When I saw him, I thought, I'm supposed to know this guy, you really? know, it was just an intuition. Huh. And so we ended up like talking on the phone that night, had a great conversation, we're pro you know, he hadn't read my book yet. I'm sending one to him. We're probably going to end up being friends right. now, you know. That's but, great. Yeah, so I follow that. I, I'm, I'm both very rational and very intuitive. Mm. And I believe in both, you know. I mean, the, the current anti-fact, you know, fake news, Trump, constant BS, it drives me nuts. The, the fact that facts are no longer just things that, you know, that, yes, that's a true thing. Uh, it's you know it it profoundly disturbs me. At the same time, I allow I have what Keats called negative capability, where you can hold two opposing ideas in mind at once without right. irritable reaching after fact or reason, as he put mm. it. Um, so I am able to say like, 
Yeah, there, you know, there's no such thing as destiny, probably, but I still believe in it, yeah. you know? And there's no such thing as, you know, ESP or intuition about people. But I still, like, half my friends, you know, it was like I got a feeling about them, and so I pursued it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, Oliver and I became friends, and then what the reason why I wrote Neurotribes was that... Um, Ten years unfolded after that article came out. I was still getting email about it almost every week. Uh, the emails were from autistic people and their families, and they were about very basic problems in human living, like accessing services, getting a diagnosis, uh, uh, being able to uh, find a job. Because for an autistic person, a face-to-face -face interview can be very difficult yeah. and very daunting. Right. Um, and, there, you know, in Silicon Valley in particular, the culture of tech bros, they, they, they're very much looking for people who seem like us, you know, who seem like these young, you know, incredibly shallow, <laughs> you know, on the way to getting rich. You know, autistic people are not like that. They're bluntly honest. They're uncouth. They're, you know, they're not trying to be cool, you know. Yeah. Um, and so autistic people get like automatically filtered out of some of the best jobs that they could do, you know? And so I started to think, wow, the people on the front lines of autism, meaning autistic people and their families have so many problems. And yet, even though society was becoming completely obsessed with autism during that time, because rain man had come out, rain man had come out and, uh, you know, it, it, these characters started appearing on television shows, you know, mm. like Sheldon with the Big Bang. Or whatever. Oh, right. And so autistic characters started to become, you know, kind of familiar pop culture icons. Um, but what was everyone talking about? If there was ever a news story about autism, it was vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. And if, New if the New York Times wrote an article about the undeniably startling rise in diagnoses that began in the early 1990s, they would say, it is still uncertain why the numbers and blah, blah, blah. And I, so after 10 years of reading this, I was like thinking like, really? Why don't we know the answer to this? You know, because the, the anti-vaccine people, that was their opening. We don't know. Look, it says in the New York Times, we don't know why these numbers are going up. It's vaccines. It's a big pharma conspiracy. And I was actually um, prone to agree with them, yeah. you know, in a certain way. I know Big Pharma is not our friend. I had written stories and wired Your about Big Pharma. Big Pharma. Story right. was a big story exactly. about Merck, in fact. Right. Yeah. Big Pharma is terrible. They're evil. You know, there have definitely been drugs on the market that they knew were, were killing people, and then they, you know, they finally sort of grudgingly took them off the market. But so I knew that Big Pharma was capable of enormous evil. But were they doing this act of enormous evil, which you know, covering up a, an autism epidemic? So, uh, well, short answer, no, they were not. But I had to take five years of more than full-time research and writing to answer the question as to why the number of uh, diagnoses started going up in the 1990s. And there's a TED Talk you can watch where I sort of compress, you know, 550 pages of the book into 14 minutes. Uh, <laughs> 14 minutes and 20 seconds. <laughs> right. It's called the, yeah. the Secret History of Autism. It's out there. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, so I, it was a big unanswered question that was creating a tremendous amount of human suffering and leading people to make unwise decisions about, uh, you know, for instance, 
if you had an autistic kid, should you be spending your money on um, speech therapy or on uh, you know chelation, an industrial process to remove mercury from the body so that they wouldn't have to be autistic anymore? Mm. And many parents were saying like, forget the speech therapy. Mm. We're going to invest in making our kid normal, mm. you know. And it does not a it doesn't work. B you're not giving them what they need to become at home in the world, which is what they need. C you're spending all this money on quacks. D stuff like chelation can be actively dangerous, even right. fatal. Right. So it wasn't just a theoretical argument. It was uh, the lack of answer to why are the autism uh, rates seem to be going up so much. That was a very uh, compelling and you know real world question with profound effects on human life so um you know in a way even though it was the hardest thing i've ever done by a thousand percent and i almost killed myself doing it literally um i now see myself as lucky in that few investigative journalists end up coming across such a huge unaddressed problem you know, and then get the time to work mm -hmm. on it. Right. And I got the time to work on it, not because I was rich. I'm, I was broken in debt. Um, I got the time to work on it because of my husband. He was a, he's a he's a poor school teacher. He teaches, you know, at a school down in the peninsula. But he was willing to support me even when the one and a half year hiatus from Wired turned into a five year endless Odyssey. Did you have a contract? Yeah, I had a contract, but that was predicated on me taking a year and a half to write the book. So that money ran out in about a year and a half. And but they let you run on for. They five let years. me run on, but it's yeah. not like they were giving me money. Right. They weren't. Yeah. That's where I am now. I'm four yeah. years past my deadline. <laughs> right. Right. So <laughs> I'm glad I mean, to hear I'm not the first person. <laughs> right. Well, I just want you to look at something. Do you see those gaps in the CD of the CD uh -huh. racks? Uh -oh. That's because. I sold oh, I many, many that. CDs. Really? I would, uh, you know, particularly Grateful Dead collector's items because I could get money for them. So I would like sell those at Amoeba Music down on 8th Street, walk across the street, buy dinner, you know, which was beans, you know. And so after five years of eating carbs, you know, I was diagnosed with diabetes, basically. Uh -huh. um, so literally, it, it yeah, affected literally, your health. Yeah, yeah, it literally affected my health. Yeah. Plus sitting at that table for five Writing years. Writing you know? is fucking hard. It I was. Mean, hard in a sedentary way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And plus, the whole time I was writing, I was under kind of maximum stress and, and uh, disheartening depression about it because specifically the autism community, not, not the autistic community in particular, but the whole community around autism, meaning parents... Autistic mm. people, researchers, clinicians are at each other's throats. Yeah, it's a you know, very it, angry community. It's a very angry community. Yeah. And, you know, now that I wrote the book, I know why. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. and, you know, it's because. But the reception's been overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, it was overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I really, I'm very grateful for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I got the Samuel Johnson Prize, which is the biggest nonfiction prize in England. And a lot of people are reading your book. And, yeah, it, and the media everywhere. has it's been everywhere. very attentive. I mean, yeah. I, you and I talked about doing this podcast about two years ago. Yeah. 
And I, I remember saying, like, look, dude, when it calms down a little, we can do it. Like, no, I know. You don't need the, to... the funniest thing was when I walked out, just, you know, walked right outside my door right here. And I saw some guy who I didn't know walking up the street, reading my book yeah. as he's walking up the block. And as he walks past me, he says, oh, my God, it's you. <laughs> you know? So that was hilarious. Yeah, so, yes, the, cool. the book uh, went everywhere. It's yeah. now out in like 14 languages. Um, Lauren Michaels of Saturday Night Live and Paramount Studios has optioned the book. Oh, nice. He is um, particularly interested in one chapter, which I can't tell you what it is, but I will say that uh, I wrote that chapter hoping someone would turn it into a movie. Oh. I wrote it like a screenplay. Fantastic. Well done. Um, so I'm psyched about that. I mean, you know, it's Hollywood, so chances are nothing will ever happen, you know. But you never know. Well, Lauren Michaels um, has a pretty good yeah. track record. And he's yeah. really into it, apparently. Huh. So Cool. Uh, and I've had good conversations so, with him. So is, is autism a discrete thing? Like, do, When we, we're talking about autism, mm -hmm. is this one of these cases where we're using a word that doesn't it's a social construction but right. it's but it's also it's also a real thing that's a really nuanced question what it is is that i you know i'll just say what i think um i believe there are a number of underlying conditions that create a similar constellation of behavior and so that constellation of behavior is called autism. But there's no thing called autism that is in a person in the same way that, uh, you know, like a flu virus might be in a person. Right. You know, it's more, in that sense, it's more like what we were saying earlier about homosexuality. Right. There didn't used to be homosexuals, a homosexual, you know. Yeah. And an autistic person is basically a person who behaves autistically enough to get a diagnosis, but can't can't that be can't that range from someone who has trouble with eye contact to an adult who has no verbal capacity at all? Absolutely, and is wearing diapers and screaming and like yeah. Well, let's not get into the too much the horror. Like people always turn uh, extreme autism into a horror show, but but, uh, but isn't that part of the spectrum? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh certainly, it's absolutely part I of mean, the spectrum. I've read stories about you know. Oh sure, the but horror but but let me true, but let me just point out the most in depth profile of. Um, a kid in my book is a kid named Leo Rosa, whose parents started out as anti-vaccine activists, and they eventually, you know, failed to render him normal with these expensive treatments. But, okay, he's barely verbal. He has very little expressive language. When I met him, uh, he was, uh, you know, like 12 or something, still wearing diapers, you know. And so when you hear a story like that, you think, oh, my God, it's so horrible. He was actually, you know, he was difficult in some ways, but he's a delightful kid who is loved by his parents. Now they love him exactly the way that he is. And Leo's life is not a tragedy. Yes, he's barely verbal. Yes, he, you know, struggles to do some things that come easily to other people. He's a delightful guy. Um, and so, you know, we the thing with autism is that because of the history that I wrote about at great length, you know, doctors would tell parents, even up through the 1990s, this is a fate worse than death. You know, like, imagine getting a diagnosis for your kid, this is a fate worse than death. You know, it's uh, completely horrifying. Yeah. Not helpful either. Not yeah. helpful for the parents or the kids. Um, 
And so, you know, if you look at, you know, the life story of homosexuals, you know, in every movie, you know, up through the 60s, they commit suicide at the end. Yeah. Like, that's how you knew the character was gay, because they had to commit suicide, you know. And, and there's something going on right now with autism in light of what's called the neurodiversity movement, where even profound autism does not always have to be viewed as a tragedy now. There are some uh, autistic lives that are tragedies, and it often has to do with them not getting the kinds of support that they need or being in an environment that makes them uncomfortable where, because they're nonverbal, they can't express, oh my God, those fluorescent lights in the ceiling are driving me crazy. But they can't say that. You know? Is it because they don't know that's what's driving them crazy? No, they can't say it. They just they're, can't you know, express right. it. So yeah. that's why um, technology to improve and facilitate communication um, for people who struggle with spoken language is so important. I'm not saying that all autistic people are little Shakespeare's inside, mm. where even, you know, if you just give them the right you iPad, get accused of you know, lot, right, right, exactly. Yeah. But um, no, I'm completely aware that some autistic people are really, you know, very intellectually disabled, very um, uncomfortable. They have violent behavior. But check it out. The whole autism cure movement was founded by a guy named Bernie Rimland, who did a lot of great things for autism parents and autistic people. But he also, unfortunately, sort of sent everybody down this blind alley of trying to cure autism. Why? Because his own son was considerably affected by autism, was very self-injurious when he was a baby. He had a big bruise on his forehead because he would hit his head against the crib. Uh, in fact, that boy ended up becoming one of the models for Rain Man. Mm. Dustin Hoffman met him and modeled the behavior of Raymond Babbitt after this boy. Okay, so, you know, if you checked in with Bernie Rimland and his wife Gloria when Mark was four, it would have been a horror show, a tragedy, sh you know, shitting everywhere. They, I remember they, they like, they got a babysitter, like after years of raising Mark, they got a babysitter when they came home. Both Mark and the babysitter were crying on the floor, you know. So, it's, oh, my God, it's a horror. I spent three days, two, two days with Mark Rimland um, while I was researching uh, NeuroTribes. He was one of the most at-home, in-his-own-skin, middle-aged guys that I've ever met. Mm. Still very autistic. You know, you would never, like, not think that he wasn't autistic. But his life was not a tragedy because his father, at the same time that he was working on the cure stuff, was building a community that would support him into old age, even after Bernie and Gloria were gone. Mm. And that's what he's got. He's secure. Mm. He's in a beautiful place. That's how my book ends. That's what we all you know. Want. Yeah, exactly. How, how I, I know one of the characteristics of autism is difficulty with social interaction with other people. What about interaction with animals? Oh yeah, autistic. Uh, a lot. You know, whenever you say, "Oh, branding. autistic people," blah blah blah, yeah. you're always wrong. Again, because you know, it's a right, spectrum. yeah, right. But um, many, many, many of my autistic friends feel some kind of special 
connection with animals as indeed Temple Grandin does. Yeah. And she's the uh, one of the leading industrial designers of uh, stockyards, basically. Yeah. And she designs those facilities so that they're more humane to so animals. So the animals won't be afraid right. when they're exactly. killed. Right. Yeah. Interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting and, line of work. Well, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it happens. Yeah. So yeah. it's better that it happens uh, while they're, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, um, I, I mean, unless you want to stop eating your hamburgers and, the hot dogs you know but i just listened to a very interesting episode of uh what was it it was about the death penalty i don't know if it was radio lab it might have been radio lab about the death penalty interesting it's gonna happen yeah you know because i'm thinking like the guillotine you know right. or, or someone gets shot like right. when they're not expecting it that's right. the most humane way to execute right. someone right right right, right. not that's these correct. lethal injections right oh my god it's a nightmare and plus they're using because the pharma uh, yeah. companies don't want their products. Well, that's what the episode right, is about. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So they're like mixing up stuff in the basement. Trino, yeah. right? But, uh, yeah. but anyway, yeah. yeah so so, so there, there is, is, yeah, and and I, I would make a larger observation based on that, which is that uh, many of my autistic friends have special connections with animals, and they are very, very sensitive to animals being mistreated. Right. In fact, even more so something that never gets talked about in any of the textbooks but i'm just going to come out here and say it i think a concern for social justice is as particular to autism as you know uh struggling to make eye contact or whatever right. autistic people the autistic people that i know and this is a lot of different um a wide range of people across the spectrum and across age groups, they're very sensitive to unfairness, you know, and they're sensitive to hypocrisy. They're sensitive to bullshit. They have no tolerance for it whatsoever. Hmm. And uh, what's, you know, what's interesting is that I once spent like a week uh, as one of the only neurotypical people in a group of autistic people. It was a retreat called Autry. And one of the things that I noticed after that week was over and I had to re-enter the quote-unquote real world is that neurotypicals are constantly bullshitting each other, <laughs> you know? And it's sort of like social lubrication, yeah, you know? Like yeah. the, that's how we keep each other thinking we're somewhat happy, you know? But autistic people don't do that. Uh -huh. And so they can come across as blunt or even rude uh, or even mean sometimes, but they're just being very direct, right. you know? And they're very sensitive to um, social injustice. And that's something that our culture needs, you know. In the worst way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Trump is sort of the opposite of uh, you know, whatever autistic people are. It reminded me of this great scene in um, one of Sachs's books. I don't know if it's Awakenings or what it, what it is, but it, the he's been working with people... I don't remember exactly what their diagnosis is, but they're watching Ronald Reagan yeah, on television yeah. and they're all yeah. laughing their asses off because yeah. he's lying, but the right. sound is off. Right, right, And they right. all know he's lying. Right, exactly. They, I don't know. If they, maybe they were autistic. I don't yeah. remember, but yeah. Was, yeah, that was, was, was very Was Sachs on the spectrum? No, but, uh, and I asked him specifically, huh. but uh, because there, a lot of people say it. Yeah. You know? But uh, no, what he felt, he which the spectrum he felt he was on was the Tourette spectrum. 
He felt he had a subtle Tourette traits. Mm. And I remember walking Tourette around. meaning Tourette syndrome. Tourette syndrome, yeah. yeah. Which he wrote about so which beautifully. Which he wrote about so beautifully. Oh, yeah. And I remember uh, walking through the streets of Manhattan with him, and some machine made a loud noise, and he immediately made that noise. Like It's called echolalia. Ah, and, you right. Know, and, uh, and he also had, he didn't recognize faces. Right, right he yeah. had prosopagnosia. Right. Right? He didn't recognize faces. Yeah. I mean, Plus, he was gay, yeah. which I figured out, and I actually helped him come out. Oh, really? Yeah, I was instrumental in Oliver's coming oh, out, congratulations actually. congratulations for that. Yeah. I mean, that was, like, at some point, I dealt with my, you know, I never lost my feelings of inferiority around Oliver, because everyone had them, because he was brilliant. Yeah. You know, it was like being friends with Thoreau or something like that. He was like so that. good looking, too. Yeah, he was. He I was mean, a, he the- was a hunk. Pictures um, of him in the motorcycle. Oh and my stuff. god! Come on, lifting weights. Yeah, yeah. No, he was he was, damn. But um, I helped him because in the course of, I mean, when I went to London with him, what I ended up doing was writing a, the most in-depth profile of him that's ever been written for Wired. It was called the fully immersive mind of Oliver Sacks, hmm. and the New Yorker had been trying to write an in-depth profile of him for years on end, and he would never do it. Why? Um, because he was gay and in the closet, and he didn't want them to figure it out. And um, but I had already figured it out. You know, we had this like big conversation in the middle of my research for my article on him, where he literally begged me not to out him, and I, you know, I I agreed to not out him, but I, uh, you know, I did say that I had to talk about how some of his kind of romantic. Uh, and life force went into his relationships with his patients. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that he was having romance with his patients, right, but, right. you know, his uh, medical arrows or something, whatever you might call it. But um, so what happened was over time, Oliver came to trust me as a gay man that he could talk to openly about his own homosexuality. He had a, an unusual life in that. He had been out, sort of, as a young man. But then once he wrote, um, you know, his Migraine and Awakenings, once he became famous, he went back in <laughs> to really? the closet. Yeah, he just yeah, didn't yeah. want to deal with it on he the didn't large want to deal scale. With it. Yeah. And also he had been traumatized by something his mother had said to him when he came out to her as a, as a young man. I remember... Yeah, he must have written about this. Yeah, he did. In, in yeah, the, he finally wrote about it. In, hallucinations or what, uh, what was no, the book? No, it was in... Um, uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting the, the book name. that he wrote toward the end of on, his on life. On the move, on the move. Oh, yeah, on the move was the book where he came out. And there was what was the book where he talks about um, having tripped in Topanga Canyon and that was probably um, yeah. What book was that? Did he write a book called? There's a book called True Hallucinations, which That's is Terrence McKenna. McKenna. Yeah, right, right. But I think um, he wrote a book called Hallucinations, and I remember at the time, and it was excerpted in the New Yorker. Yeah. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, this is going to be huge that Oliver Sacks is admitting to using psychedelics. Yeah. Right? I'll tell you a really funny story. And nothing about, happened. Nothing happened. I'll t- because he was already considered so weird, like it was just more weirdness. <laughs> but I'll tell you a really funny story. Yeah. I figured out that he had taken psychedelics not because he told me or because I read it in The New Yorker. I figured out because there's an essay in certain editions of Awakenings, it was like the first paperback run. There's an essay called Parkinsonian Space and Time. It's my favorite piece of Oliver's writing. Mm -hmm. 
It's absolutely a psychedelic piece of writing. Parkinsonian space Space and time. And as soon as I read it, I said to myself, this guy has dropped acid. <laughs> I just know it. Yeah, you, know? you can tell. And so, I, so when I met him, I said, yeah. Oliver, have you ever taken acid? Yeah. And yeah, and he told me. You yeah. know, and I, and I, he was much amused that I figured out for reading that essay. That's great. And he said, yeah. and, and he said but when you've been there, you know, right. you know when someone, right. like, like when J- John Lennon denied ever using LSD. Did he? Yeah, I he, did. he did. That's in, in the late Playboy, the the last oh, wow. art, the last interview he did in Playboy, oh, that's uh, there was bad. all this stuff about no, Lucy in the Sky. That was my my daughter's friend. Oh, everything. Yeah. Or no, no, no. Come, Come on, on, dude. Yeah, right. A day in the life. You weren't <laughs> right. tripping. Give me right. a break. Nobody writes that song. Yeah, who hasn't tripped. Exactly. Yeah, it's like yeah. Hendrix saying you didn't trip. Right. Give me a break. <laughs> right. Exactly. So um, yeah. So Oliver was traumatized about his mother. Oh, oh, right. Know. So he comes out to his mother. And his mother, who was Orthodox Jewish, yeah. said, I wish you'd never been born. Yeah, yeah I remember And that. so he was really traumatized by that. Mm-hmm. And it wounded him so much that then once he became the famous Dr. Oliver Sacks, it was just too much to deal with that he was also gay. And so... Didn't he have a partner? Yeah, but only after much work by me. No, I mean, I didn't get them together at all. But um, I had a series of very lengthy conversations with him hmm. about his feelings about his own homosexuality and he was deeply ashamed of it when yeah. I first met him and he hadn't had he hadn't even gotten laid in like 25 years or something yeah. and he told me you know I remember he told me some story about meeting a guy at Hampstead Heath uh, in the you know in the ponds at Hampstead Heath and then they had like a week affair and he said something like Little did I know that would be my last, you know. And I thought, God, so sad. I mean, here's this guy. It's like even I knew people who had crushes on Oliver. Sure. You know? It's like, a, like sure. I could have hooked him up like with a phone call, you know. One of the but- beautiful <laughs> things is that, that people will be sexually attracted to a mind. Exactly. That's one right, of the most exactly. beautiful things there That's is. True. And he had a very juicy mind. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. He, yeah. he was not only... You know, I'm straight, and I would have fucked his mind. <laughs> no, no, it's true. Uh, I mean, he was not only panoramically brilliant; he was also like very funny, yeah. and, you know, very humane and very weird. And yeah. you kind of wanted to take care of him when you were with him because he seemed sort of mm, vulnerable in some ways. Uh, yeah, like hyper developed in some areas right. and undeveloped in others. Right. Like I remember when we were in London, he. Uh, Asked the busboy for a cup of tea, and before getting the tea, the busboy, you know, set like 10 tables. And I knew that it was driving me, you know, and, you know, after about five minutes, I was like, what is going on? You know, like, he couldn't abide it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, the one thing that I wished I could have convinced him to do, but he was too uh, disdainful of the woo element was meditate. Ah. Uh, he was very interested in huh. the texture of consciousness. Yeah. His last book, the, which just came out, I mean, his most recently published book, it came out after his death, called The River of Consciousness, is a fascinating um, insight into um, how consciousness is not continuous, as it seems to be if you're naive, but if you've either dropped a lot of acid or done long meditation retreats, you know, the consciousness can be discontinuous and there can be gaps in it. Yeah. Or a flicker, like in a movie. And, uh, you know, so I told him, Oliver, you know, it's like, 
I talk to these guys who've done, you know, three-year Buddhist retreats. They tell me the same thing, you know. And he's oh, he had no time for Did it. Did he ever know? do, like, um, flotation tanks or any of that kind of stuff? I don't know. Uh, that uh, you know about like, yeah, John Lilly. Yeah, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, John Lilly was like one of those fascinating people who seemed to go a bit too far in the end, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, dropping mescaline in the tank, right? Yeah, and hyperdoses, right? And, yeah. I mean, a lot of my, uh, a lot of the role models that us trailing edge baby boomers had were somewhat excessive. You know, it's like, I mean, yeah. I remember, you know, when I was in high school, Leary seemed really cool. Yeah. You know, eventually I realized, oh, actually half the stuff he says is bullshit. You know, he says that LSD is a specific cure for homosexuality. You know, he claimed that it was going to cure Allen Ginsberg. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> is there yeah. any, and there's all, you probably know about maps and Rick yeah, Doblin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very connected to that world. Oh, that's great. Is there any... You know, uh, Michael Pollan's coming out with a book now about psychedelics. I did not know it's that. It's coming that's out any day. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, it's already oh, been. I should review it or something. You should. Yeah. yeah. I think it's all. He's already published an excerpt in the New Yorker. Oh, but I'll I check don't. It out. The book's not out yet. I'll but, check it out. Um, yeah. So I mean, there's a huge. Uh, there's a big section on on psychedelic medicine in the book I'm writing. Mm. Not that that's going to have the uh, impact of Michael Pollan, but it's. Uh, being treated, you know, MDMA is being used for PTSD, yeah. psilocybin for end of life um, anxiety. Also, for uh, I gave a presentation with a woman who's using it for social anxiety and autism. That's what I wanted to ask yeah. you. Is yeah. is there something happening MDMA, with psychedelics yeah. and yeah. so MDMA specifically yeah, with MDMA autism? Specifically. What about the sort of neurogenesis associated with psilocybin? I haven't heard anything in reference to autism. Uh. But interesting, interesting to yeah. Yeah, think about. listen i've taken up a lot of your yeah, time I'm sorry I, yeah yeah sorry for what man okay. you invited right. me into your house i could talk well, to you all day i, I, I really enjoyed this good good Excellent. Uh, it's been thanks totally organic it would Great. you know maybe we'll do it again and cool. i'll get to my notes <laughs> cool. well thank you so uh, much Chris. yeah i really appreciate thank you it. man and and continued success and everybody needs to read neurotribes thanks get a copy all right. Thanks again to Steve Silberman for making time for that and inviting me into his house. Wonderful time. Uh, hope you enjoy that conversation. And I'm going to play you out, as always, with the beautiful, wonderful, brilliant Carsey Blanton. Catch you next time. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest 
Dance into the ground. 